Advent is the beginning of the church year. So uh, somewhere in the first few centuries of Christianity, the church began to mark time differently. It stopped marking time by the sun and the moon and began to mark time by the life of Jesus. And so Advent is the beginning of the year because it is leading into the beginning of Jesus' life. It is the season of anticipation, the season of waiting before we celebrate the coming of Christ at Christmas. As the year unfolds, we come to a season known as Lent, 40 days of preparation to celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. And then there's Pentecost, and we go through the rest of the year. And it is for us as Hydrant, we tend to lean in during Advent and Christmas and Lent and, and Easter and, and not as much during some of the other rhythms and more traditional seasons and flow of what's known as um, church liturgy. Or, um, and, and so for us, this is one of those seasons we really lean in. And one of the reasons we lean in is because Advent is about being stuck in between. There is this sense in which we remember the stories of a God who promised to send a king and after centuries fulfilled that promise. And we lean into those stories, we lean into those feelings and those emotions of waiting, of being stuck, of trying to hold on to hope of believing in peace and love and joy when we feel like everything we see doesn't lend us, lend toward our conviction of those things. When it feels like the world is falling apart around us and we want to still believe that God cares. And we lean into this season because we believe that Jesus promised to come again. But we've been waiting a long time. And waiting sucks. Waiting is hard. It's hard to hope. It's hard to believe. It's hard to hold on to joy while we wait. And so we lean back and we lean into the stories of Jesus. We lean into the to the promises and the the prophecies as a reminder that when we feel like we're not enough, when we feel like there isn't enough, when we feel like we've been waiting too long, that we have a God who shows up. We have a God who doesn't abandon us, who doesn't forget us, who doesn't write us off. We have a God who makes a way for the people of Israel, one of the promises they held on to, one of the prophecies that reminded them of a God, that their God was a God who made a way, is found in Isaiah chapter 43. In Isaiah chapter 43, beginning at verse 16, it says this, this is what the Lord says, the one who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. And he says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. 
Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. He's basically saying, remember who you are. Remember this story of when I brought you out of Egypt. For 400 years, you were slaves. For 400 years, you called out and cried out. And you thought I had forgotten about you and abandoned you. You forgot my name, but I didn't forget you. And I've made a way through the desert. I made a way through the Red Sea. And I'll do it again. When you feel like you're in a wasteland, when you feel like you're in a desert, I will make a way. I will make a way. You know, there's a characteristic of the wasteland and the deserts that I think often marks us. In the desert, there's just not enough. There's not enough shade. There's not enough water. There's not enough food. You are there lacking. The wasteland And many of us feel this all the time. Our attention gets drawn toward it during times like this. Brene Brown says that the mantra of our culture is not enough. I don't have enough. We wake up. I didn't get enough sleep. We go to bed. I didn't get enough done today. We don't have enough time to enjoy the money we've earned. We don't have enough money to to enjoy the time we have. We don't feel like we ever have enough. And the crazy thing is without Christ, there is no such thing as enough. We'll never feel like we have enough. We've never earned enough. Without without Christ, we never will feel like we are enough. We can't have enough stuff to tell us that we are secure. We We can't gain enough reputation to feel like we are safe. And loved. Without Christ, there never is enough resources. We're always feeling like we need more apart from Christ. But the remarkable thing is that with Christ, there's never not enough. Without, with Christ, when we are in Christ, there is never not enough. Because his love is super abundant. While we are trained in our culture to think in terms of scarcity, to think in terms of not enough, to think in terms of shame and guilt and failure and lack. We have a God who operates in a super abundance of grace, in a love that crashes over, and a God who is making a way, whose promises are always fulfilled, and who is always faithful. The problem for most of us, is that we want to separate the promise from the process. Here's what I mean. Our God is a way maker, but you have to walk in the way that he makes for you. Israel. God made a way. He split the Red Sea, giant walls of water on either side, but they had to walk through the Red Sea. To be free. Over and over again, we see in Scripture that there is this promise and a process. One of my favorite stories of 
of, uh, of Jesus making a way in the New Testament is found in John chapter 6. You can turn there. I'll read it in just a moment. But what I want to talk about today is what do we do when it's getting late and we don't have enough? How do we respond? How do we trust? A God who says he makes a way, that he's doing a new thing, that you can look back and see that I was faithful and believe that I'll be faithful again. How do we trust that when we feel like we're being swallowed up by the darkness? When we feel like we've been wandering through a desert? When we're waiting and hoping for a win after what seems like one disappointment after another? How Do we trust in a way maker when we need a breakthrough, when we need a way forward? So John chapter 6, I think, begins to point us in a direction. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, we find this miracle. It's kind of a Sunday school story. We tell it to kids because there's a kid in the story, and we feel like it relates. It's one that is fun to tell. It's it's exciting and, and miraculous, but sometimes we hear it. We've heard it so many times that we don't pay attention. It's one of, it's, other than the resurrection, it's the only miracle in all four Gospels. So it must be important. There must be something we need to hear again. And so John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, we find these words. Sometime after this. So what John doesn't tell us, but the others do, is this is right after Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded. So he's sad, he's hurting, and he needs to get away. And so he takes his disciples and they, they cross to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, trying to get away from people. And a great crowd of people follow him anyway. Because they had heard about the signs, they had seen the signs he had performed, healing the sick. And so Jesus, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down with his disciples The Jewish Passover feast was near. And when he looked up and he saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And I hate the next verse. He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. And so Philip answered him, Well, Jesus, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite, to have some crumbs. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he spoke up. Hey, there's a boy here. He has five small barley loaves, not even like good loaves. Barley was like the cheapest grain. So he's like the cheapest, like worst kind of bread. Barley loaves and two small fish. He's like, really, what good is that going to do? How far is that going to go with so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. I don't know why John felt the need to tell us this. There's plenty of grass. They didn't need plenty of grass. They weren't trying to feed sheep. They were trying to feed people. They need plenty of grub. But they have plenty of grass. Does it ever feel like God does that to you? He gives you plenty of what you don't need and not enough of what you do. Anyway, sorry. Maybe a personal thing. And so they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. I think it says about 
Because it started out at 5,000, and when Jesus told that many people to sit down, some of those guys like, we got to solve this problem. It's getting late, getting hungry. Let's beat the crowd to the cities, get a bit, and get out of here before everybody else starts rushing. So there was about 5,000 because, let's, be face it, let's face it, at least a quarter of the guys took their families and left. They weren't going to sit down. They weren't going to wait. And then Jesus took the loaves, and he gave thanks. And he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they'd all had enough to eat, when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather up the pieces that are left over. We're having fish sandwiches for a month. So let nothing be wasted. So what I want to do today is just point out a couple of things that I've been noticing in this story. I've been going through a season that felt a lot like not enough. Not enough resources. Not enough time. Not a, that I didn't have enough skill. Enough knowledge. Didn't know what to do or know the way forward. I couldn't solve it. I couldn't fix it. It just felt like not enough. And as I was looking at some of the stories where, where God makes a way in Scripture. This one has just kept coming back, and I noticed some things. Some things I've noticed before, and some that I never really paid attention to. But the first is that sometimes when we don't have enough, we're being tested. And I don't like to imagine God is testing me. I feel like that's kind of manipulative. We have all these negative images of testing from school and all this stuff. Like, why, God, do you have to test me? I'm faithful. I'm good. This isn't right. You shouldn't have to do this. But there's testing that's done right reveals an area we need to grow. It gives us knowledge we didn't have, right? So we notice the things we don't know yet that we need to know and can go learn those things. It shows us where our faith needs to grow, where our, our, our ability to pray needs to grow, maybe where we need to learn a new skill. Other times, testing shows us what's really there. We do better in the test than we thought we would. We find that there is faith in us that we didn't know was there. There is strength there we didn't know was there. There's hope there that we didn't know that was there. There was light there we didn't know was there. There is people around us that we didn't realize were around us. That he's already put in us the beginnings of what we need. We just didn't know it was there, so we weren't using it. This week we pulled bushes out of, from front of the building. Maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't. Um, but we pulled bushes out. We did it with a tractor. Now, that morning, there were five guys who showed up. Two of the guys thought we were going to be using chains and shovels to pull the bushes and showed up anyway. If we had used chains and shovels, that's one way to do it. It would have taken a whole lot longer, and we'd still be working on it. But they just didn't know we had a tractor lined up. They didn't know the resource was there. They showed up anyway, which I'm grateful. I wouldn't have. There was a resource there they didn't know about, that they showed up and found what they needed to do the job. 
was even more than they realized they had. Can I just take a side note? Like, this has little to do with this sermon, but it's important for us, I think. Especially considering the age of our congregation, our church. Our, like that good churchy word congregation? Like our people. We're a young group of people for the most part. I was having a conversation with Noah um, this week. He sat down on the stairs beside me. I was putting on my shoes. He just sat down. He said, Dad, is there anything else I need to do to be like growing in my faith? Like I'm, I'm in church. I'm taking notes. I'm trying to do the things that you talk about. And I, and I read my Bible during the week. And I'm, and I'm trying to listen and do those things. And I, and I talk to God. But I, I just feel like it's not like changing fast enough. And I just told her, I said, you lack one thing, time. So when I was in my 20s, I took my first job as a lead pastor, and there was a man named Irving in the church. And he was in his 70s, and he was a man of deep faith. The church had been plummeting for a decade, and he said, the best is yet to come. And I thought, what's yet to come is closing the doors. But, you know, if you have that faith... And I can remember telling God, God, I want, I want Irving's faith. How do I get Irving's faith? And God just said, well, walk with me for another 50 years and you'll have Irving's faith. He earned that faith. He developed that faith. That faith grew 50 years of following me. So if you are young in your faith and you look at someone who seems to have more faith and they seem to be further along, and you're like, man, I want to grow faster. Like, you didn't make yourself get taller any faster. You're not going to make your faith grow any faster than you can by just simply being in the right place and walking with him day in and day out. He will grow your faith in time. So don't beat yourself up if you're not where you think you ought to be. But then know that there will be times when he tests you to show you where you need to grow next, where you need to put some effort in. Times he tests you to show you what's there. Times he tests you to bring something new out of you. I have this reputation around Hydrant, especially with leaders and volunteers, of asking people to do things they don't want to do. I mean, that's the whole thing of leadership, right? Ask people to do things they don't think they can do so that they discover that they really wanted to do it all along. No, we didn't. But that's what I do. I just... Here, let me put you into this thing. And most every time they come back six months or a year later, I'm so glad you asked. I never would have chosen to do this, but I love it. Sometimes they want to punch me. But most of the time, they're glad. And sometimes God puts us into that situation. He tests us to reveal something new that we didn't know was there, to bring something new out of us, to develop something new that's been hiding. And in this story, we find Jesus testing Philip, really all of the disciples. And here's the crazy and kind of annoying part, is Jesus already knew he was going to do. He already knew what he was going to do, but he didn't tell Philip and Andrew that. He already knows how he's going to make a way in your life and my life, in our church, in our community. He already knows what he's going to do. 
He's just not talking about it all that much. And we get annoyed. We get frustrated. Like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you showing up? And he's like, listen, I already know what I'm going to do. I know what you're going through. I know what the need is. I'm not surprised by any of this. I'm not frustrated by any of this. I am not overwhelmed by any of this. I'm not worried about any of this. I already know what I'm going to do. You just don't know yet. And the test is to see whether or not we'll trust him when we don't know what he's going to do. Now, the truth is he'll have a role for you to play. He'll have things for you to do. The disciples, they had to bring him the boy. They had to go and spread the food around. They had to then go back and clean up and pick up the leftovers. They had a role to play in the miracle that Jesus was working. They had a role to play. They had a way to walk in this. But they had to trust that Jesus knew what he was doing when they didn't know what he was doing. When they didn't know what they were doing. When they didn't see a solution, they had to trust that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. That he already knows what he's going to do in your situation. The third thing I want to point out is that Jesus cares about your needs. Jesus cares about your needs. In other tellings of this story in the other gospels, we find the disciples saying, hey, Jesus, you need to send all these people home. You need to get rid of them because their need is too big. They're, they need too much food for us to do anything about. Send them home. And Jesus refused to do it. Instead, he said to the disciples in that telling of the story, hey, um, you go feed them. Like, with what? He didn't ask. Just, you go feed them. He cared about the fact that the people were hungry, that they had a need, that it was getting late. In this story, he looks at his disciples and says, okay, they're here, they're hungry, what do we do? He wasn't sending them away. When you come to Jesus in your moment of need, he doesn't send you away. He cares about your need. He cares about what you're going through. He cares about your finances. He cares about your struggle. He cares about your, your, your lack in knowing what to do when it comes to parenting. He cares about the, the challenges in your marriage, in your workplace, in your future. He cares about your need. And when you come to him, he doesn't send you away. His brother, James, wrote, like, have you ever, have you ever thought about it? Like, what must it have taken for James to believe that Jesus was the like, Messiah, Savior of the world, God of all creation? He grew up sharing a bedroom with this kid, right? Can you imagine if, if suddenly your brother or sister's like, hey, by the way, I'm God. Yes, yeah, sure you are. Sure, we're going to take a little drive to this place that has bars on the windows, but don't worry about it. But he believed, and he said, listen, cast all your cares, bring all your anxieties, to Jesus because he cares for you. He cares about what you're going through. He cares about the need that you have and what you're facing. He cares and he doesn't send us away. Then Jesus, he takes this bread, this little bit of junk bread, clearly not enough to even feed himself and his 12 disciples. And he thanks God for it. 
He demonstrated gratitude even when what he had was not enough. He demonstrated gratitude. He was grateful even when he didn't have enough. And he began to see the way that God was making forward. Now imagine... Let's take a step back. Gratitude, what it does for us is it shifts our attention from our problem to the God who makes a way. What, what tends to happen, even when we come to God in our moment of the desert, when we don't know how things are going to work out, when we don't have enough, all we usually do is keep saying, God, I don't have enough. God, look at this. This isn't enough. God, I don't know what I'm going to do. God, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know the way. And, and we just keep telling him about our problem. And Jesus demonstrates for us gratitude even when he didn't have enough. And it shifts his focus to the Father and the, what the Father can do with that little bit instead of the problem. See, it, it, it opens the doorway for us to see the way that God is making for us when we're able to be grateful even when we don't have enough. The people of Israel, the story of Exodus, they're trapped, right? They're trapped between Egypt's army, the most powerful nation in the world, coming to kill them, and the Red Sea. Sea's not moving. I'm watching the army. But imagine, had they all been so focused on the problem, all focused on the army, and you got Moses back here, who walks out over the Red Sea and holds his stick. God splits it, but they're all so busy staring at the army, nobody sees the way that God has made. And that's what tends to happen to us in our lives. We're so focused on the problem, naming the problem, renaming the problem, trying to figure out the problem, trying to solve the problem. We're not grateful for what we've been given, and we can't see the way that God is making for us, much less walk in it. We're stuck. Staring only at the problem. We kind of shift and begin to be grateful even when we feel like we don't have enough, when we aren't enough, when we don't have, know what to do. He begins to open up that way. But he, the next thing I'm going to point out is really, again, kind of annoying in this whole story. Jesus told the people to sit down and told the disciples to start passing out the food. Now imagine, you got 5,000 men and their families, 10, 12,000 people on this mountainside. If you're toward the back of that crowd, you can't see Jesus. He's been projecting his voice as he, te- as he taught out over the valley, and you kind of heard most of it or heard somebody repeat it to you. And now you're, you're trying to see what's happening. It's getting late. You've been talking to your family. We need to go. We need to figure this out. The kids are getting hungry and cranky because they get cranky when they get hungry. You think you get cranky. Try a three-year-old or a ten-year-old. I think the older they get, they get crankier. It's probably some kind of equation there. Anyway, they're there in the back. They're trying to figure out what to do. 
And the word says, hey, Jesus said, tell everybody to sit down. What? I don't know. He just said sit down. Well, good. He's telling everybody to sit. Let's bolt while everybody else is sitting down. Because they couldn't see what Jesus was doing. They didn't see the little boy. They didn't see the five loaves or the two fish. They couldn't see from their vantage point, the 12 disciples starting to pass out food. There had been a miracle. There was a miracle going on right in front of them, but they, were, they couldn't see it because it hadn't gotten to them yet. But Jesus told them, just sit and give me a minute. I'm about to do something like you could never imagine. I'm going to take, you're not enough, and I'm going to give you so much there's leftovers. But they had to trust the process and do what he asked them to do. See, sometimes a a miracle just takes time to develop. Miracles take time to develop. They require us to wait. But often we're like those at the back of the crowd leaving and missing out because it was taking too long. Jesus, you're taking too long to make a way here. You're taking too long to solve this. You're taking too long to make this any better. Jesus, I need a win. I'm going to go find it. But we see this over and over in Scripture. Right? Like there was one of my favorite miracles, because it's gross, is Jesus spits in the dirt, right? And he makes mud with his spit and rubs it on a guy's face. He can't see because he's blind. He doesn't know what's happening. He just hears it. Can you imagine how much spit it took to make enough mud to do that? And you're standing there in front of Jesus and you hear him like hawking up whatever to make this mud. And then you feel it and smell it as it gets smeared on your face. And you still can't see. And Jesus says, go wash it off. And you're like, instead, you're standing there, you're trying to get it off or whatever. All he had to do is go wash for the miracle to unfold. And he did, and he experienced the healing that he needed. So many of us are standing there with mud on our face, complaining about it. God's like, I'm doing a, like, it's a miracle unfolding right here, if you'll listen. Then there's like the leper. Leprosy was bad, like fingers falling off, ears falling off, like your skin just kind of falling off disease. Terrible at this time. They had to live off to the side of the community. Couldn't be anywhere near others because it was so contagious. And Jesus says to this leper, go show the priest. He'll mark you as clean and you can go back home. But what if he said, what if he like pulled one of those bandages like, I'm not better. Jesus like, I didn't say you were better. And I said, go show the priest. And God is saying to us, I want you to go show the priest. I want you to go to this. I, I have this little thing. If you'll just do this, it'll unfold this miracle. And we're like, I don't see it yet, Jesus. What's going on? And we're waiting to see it before we're able to walk in obedience. Then there's Naaman. Naaman is this general of a foreign army who travels to one of the prophets and priests of Israel and says, hey, I hear that God uses you to make people well. Will you heal me of my leprosy again? And, and, and the prophet doesn't even come out of his house. He doesn't even acknowledge the guy's important. He tells his servant to tell the guy, 
Go wash in the Jordan River seven times and then you'll be healed. Naaman is furious. He didn't even come out to talk to me. Does he know who I am? Does he know all this gold and gifts I brought for him? What is he doing? And he's leaving, ignoring what he was told to do. Ignoring what God told him to do that would bring healing and work a miracle. And his servant says, hey, listen. If that prophet had asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. All he did is ask you to jump in that dirty river a few times. He's like, we got cleaner rivers back home. I don't want to jump in the Jordan. It's like, okay, fine. Your funeral, literally. Finally, Naaman agrees. You imagine, he like goes down once and he comes back up. It's like trash on his shoulder and muddy instead of clean. Leprosy's not gone. Twice, three times. He's trying to do it. He's trying to be obedient. But can you imagine? He probably was getting more and more mad. Like, why isn't this working? We do it too. God, I started tithing. Why isn't this working? I was trying to live by a budget. Why wasn't I out of debt last month? God, I've been trying to be patient and listen to my spouse, but we keep fighting. Why haven't you fixed it yet? God, I'm trying to listen and love and have discipline in my home, but I just, I feel like I'm getting nowhere. God, I'm trying to to cut extra out of my time, but I just feel guilty all the time for telling people no. Why haven't you fixed it yet? They're like, we're down three. He's like, I told you seven. Keep going. Give it time to unfold. It doesn't happen overnight. Five, six, still nothing. And then the seventh time he comes up and it's all gone. His skin is as clear as an infant's. We have to walk our way through. I mean, sure, if he wanted to, I'm sure God could have teleported them from one side of the Red Sea to the other. No problem. That's not how God works. He makes a way and you have to walk in it. I have to walk in it. He makes a way for us to grow. He makes a way for us to learn. He makes a way for us to be healed and whole. He makes a way for us to be financially free. He makes a way for us to be emotionally healthy. He makes a way for us to be physically healthy. But we just got to walk in it. And we're like, God, I don't know if I want to do that. He's like, I'll do a miracle if you'll do it. And you're like, I still don't know. I'm making a way for you. And then we complain, right? We sit at the mouth of the pathway to everything we want, everything we were created to be. And like, God, when are you going to fix this? It's like, just walk. Just follow me down this path. He'll make a way. We have to walk in it. That's our part. So I wonder, when you're tested this season, when you feel like you don't have enough, when you feel like you're not enough, Will you respond like Philip or Andrew? Philip calculated the cost and said, okay, Jesus, here's what you need to do to feed all these people. And Jesus laughed. Right, like, that's what I have to do? That's, that's how it's going to work? And that's what we do, right? Like, okay, God, here's how I need you to fix this. Do this and this and this and it'll all be better. And he laughs at us too. Or we can respond like Andrew. I'm like, here's what I got. I don't know what you can do with it, but here it is. It's, it's not much. It's barley. 
couple fish. But I, don't, I don't know how far it's going to go, but here you go, Jesus. It's everything I've got. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. Will you be Philip or will you be Andrew? One last story and I'll wrap up. A couple weeks ago, I was meeting with our elders and we were going over uh, budget stuff and just stuff going on in the church and things that, you know, we talk all, all the normal just things. I, like I'm accountable to them. I report to them. They uh, hold me accountable to do the things that are my job and um and then we were talking about the finances and thinking about next year as we get closer to the fiscal year. And, and it's always a hard meeting, but this one was, like, depressing. It was frustrating. And I told you about that last week. But um, we just stopped. And we said, okay, we can't fix this. <laughs> we're gonna, we'll come back to it next month. Let's just stop and pray right now. Let's just stop and pray. And as they were praying, each of them took a turn and prayed for me, prayed for the church, prayed for the leaders, prayed for you, prayed for every, every part of us. And, and God just brought a story to mind. It's a story from Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 11. And it's, it's after God had brought them through. He'd already made a way through the Red Sea. They'd walk through it. God makes a way. Now they're out in the desert, and they got thirsty because there's no water in the desert. And, and Moses is telling God about the problem. God says, here's what I want you to do. Take your stick. That's, that's a whole other thing. Like, God, God never asks you to do anything with what you don't have. He just says, what do you have? Moses had a stick. The widow who's, who God provided for had some oil. Andrew's like, we got a boy with a couple pieces of bread and some fish. So that's enough. Whatever you have in God's hands is enough. And so he, he looks at Moses and says, take your stick, a fancy stick. We'll call it a staff to make it sound like it's something more than a stick. And go stand in front of the rock and speak to the rock. And I'll make water come out of the rock. And so Moses takes his stick and he goes in front of the rock. But instead of doing what God asked him to do, he does what he knows to do. See, at this time in this part of the desert... There are places where water runs behind the rock, like streams. And if you know where to look, you can hit the rock and break it, and water will come out. And so Moses decides he's going to do what he knows to do as a shepherd who has worked that desert area before. And he takes his stick, and he doesn't speak to the rock. He hits it, and he just starts pounding on that rock. And eventually, God still makes water come out. But Moses, Moses didn't trust God to make a way. He decided to try to figure it out himself and do it himself. And because you can't lead that way, he wasn't ever able to go into the promised land. He got to see it, but he didn't get to go in. Because God knew he couldn't have a leader that was going to do it his way. He needed a leader who was going to follow God's direction. And as we were praying, God brought that story to mind, and he just kind of said, don't go hitting rocks this next couple months. Don't, don't hit rocks. Trust me. 
And so I've just had to keep telling myself over the last couple of months, it's not about what you can figure out, it's not about what you can fix, it's not what you know. you got to trust the one who can make a way where there seems to be no way. The one who makes a way through deserts, streams through wastelands, splits the sea, who multiplies bread and fish until there's more than enough. So you just do what I ask you to do. And don't try to figure this out and hit all the rocks around you. Wear yourself out. So in this season, when you feel like you're not enough and you don't know what to do and you don't have enough, can you trust he already knows what he's going to do? Can you prepare Can you prepare for what's next by being grateful for the strength, the energy, the time, the resources you do have? Can you do whatever he asks you to do? Even if it means asking for help or being vulnerable or taking a chance or not doing anything. Can we trust that our God is a way maker? This Advent, you will have moments where you don't feel up to what's in front of you. That you don't have enough and you're not enough. You may feel like there is no way forward and you're doomed to wander in this desert forever. But the prophet Isaiah spoke. The word of the Lord and the word of the Lord remains true. This is what the Lord says. See, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up. Can you see it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I made a way once and I'll do it again. I made a way once and I'll do it again. You just have to walk in it. Let's pray. God, when I feel like hitting rocks, will you stop my hand? (laughs) When I feel like solving it and figuring it out and making it happen. When I don't feel like enough, will you help me to be grateful? And to find you in the midst of it. When I don't know what to do, would you help me to trust that you already know what you're going to do? And that I can just do whatever you ask me to do even if it's sitting on the grass and waiting. God, this is a a season where we are reminded that we are waiting on you to show up again. Would you fill us with hope and peace and joy in knowing that you never left us and that you're working even when we can't see it yet? In Jesus' name, amen. It was an honor to worship with you this morning. I hope that you have a great, beautiful afternoon. Enjoy a homemade cookie on your way out, and we'll see you again next week.